Hello, good evening, and welcome to God's Own Scale, Episode 9, the one with Richard Clark from the Two Fat Lardies. I hope you're hobbying and gaming as much as possible. Lockdown seems to be being lifted now, and one gets a feeling that face-to-face gaming isn't too far away. My own club is looking to discuss very soon when we might venture back to the hallowed halls of the Stoke War Games group. Shows still seem a long way off, but you never know. Partisan in October may stand a chance of running, but obviously health and safety comes first. But if it is safe to do so, wouldn't it be great to get over to Kellum uh, to the uh, the show there and uh, have a real celebration of the hobby in all its forms? Uh, as mentioned last time, I am part of Peb Roden's charity community army build and my figures have now arrived. I've got the Clarkling Regiment, a foot in blue coat with light purple trim. I'm sure they're going to look very dashing and they'll be part of the Densui army. Some fine examples are already beginning to appear online and I'll hope to get on with my own very soon. Hobby-wise, I'm coming to the end of a largest commission for a friend at the club around 260 15 mil Austrian Napoleonics. I've quite enjoyed them, and I'm not ruling, ruling out more commissions in the future. I've also managed to get all of the basing done on the Mons project, just uh, a few more Germans to paint, sort out the scenery, and then that'll be game on, and that'll be a lovely game to put on for the Stoke Club to reopen to. Uh, I've knocked out a couple of 6mm Austrian Napoleonic units as well um, in a project I've got running with my good friend Aid, with the intention of using Blucher at the moment. I also managed to get a small ordering with Bacchus whilst their shopping cart was open. Once again Peter Berry was inundated with orders, meaning the cart had to close around 24 hours later, which is great for Peter, but if you miss the window, keep an eye out for the next time it opens. Reading a lot about the Battle of Waterloo at the moment, having followed Alex Sotheran from Storm of Steel on his YouTube channel, uh, refighting the battle uh, using Blucher. And Alex is guesting on uh, episode 10, which should be out in a couple of weeks, probably around the 11th of July, something like that. Got quite a list of guests coming up for the next few episodes, so plenty more to come. In particular, I want to get uh, a couple more manufacturers on here if I can. I'm trying to reach out to Rapier Miniatures. So if you are listening, please uh, get in touch at the email I'll give to you shortly. Uh, I'd love to get Ian Kay on from Irregular Miniatures uh, and also the guys at Adler. So listen out for them. Hopefully, um, I'll, I'll be able to speak to them at some point in the very near future. Just to, And Heroics and Ross, of course. Sorry. Forgotten about Heroics of Ross Alcada, the grandfather of the scale. Um, it would be great to get them on as well. Um, okay, uh, enough of me wittering on. You're not here to listen to me. You're here to listen to uh, Mr. Richard Clark, uh, one half of Two Fat Lardies, one of the most prolific rules writing duos in the hobby at the moment and who have a large and loyal following. So uh, we talk about 
or, or the aim of the, the discussion was to talk about infamy, infamy. But as these things go, uh, we do go on to many and varied subjects. Hope you enjoy the chat. So let's talk about six. Welcome to uh, God's Own Scale podcast. This is Sean in the heat and the sweltering weather that we have in uh, deepest, darkest Shropshire. Um, I've got a rather special guest with me on the podcast, a man who needs no introduction, but I will give him a short one. Anyway, I've got Mr. Richard Clark with me. Hello, Richard. Hi. How are you doing down there? I'm, mel- I'm melting, as, as a, a green lady once said. <laughs> it's, it's very hot. It's very hot. So if you've got any small dogs, keep them away from me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd hate to have a 99 ice cream cone in my hand because I don't think it would last very long. <laughs> Long. No, no, no. It'd be all uh, running around your elbow in moments, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I say, Richard needs no introduction. He is one half of uh, Two Fat Lardies, with Nick Skinner uh, being the, the second half. Mm. Um, and uh, to anybody who's anybody in wargaming, then it's it's a name that won't be unfamiliar to you. So, uh, Richard, I, I think I first read an article by you some point in the mid 90s in probably yeah. illustrated yeah i am um, the first article i can find that i ever wrote was something like um 1990 or 1991 something like that i've no um i um I haven't, I haven't actually bothered to pursue it, but that's the first one that came across my desk. I, I literally threw all away. This is terrible, I know, but I threw away all my old copies of War Games Illustrated and Miniature War Games, and I had them all, all from episode one. And I took them to the recycling bank and threw them away because I needed the shelf space. And somebody said you should sell them on eBay, and I thought about it, and I thought, oh my god this could just because there's so many of the damn things so i just recycled them because you can get them all in electronic format now and by chucking them away i literally freed up 16 feet of shelf space which i put books on anyway as i flicked through that i think it was 1991 was the first one i I could find which was hilarious because i wrote a series called back to basics and it was the first thing i'd ever written and it was just laughable that me in my 20s thought i could write this series telling people how to play war games starting from the very very beginning and uh, <laughs> looking back it's sort of cringeworthy but Duncan very kindly published it Duncan McFarlane was running uh, war games illustrated at the time and uh, and it kind of all snowballed from there nobody ever had the heart to tell me that I, I I couldn't write for a toffee and my prose was awful so I kept on doing it ever since nobody told me to stop so I just kept no. going Exactly. <laughs> I remember that series actually. I didn't realise you'd written that, but I think I think the, one of the first um, and th- this will sound slightly bizarre uh, to people who who don't remember the same article. And I'm hope, really hoping you remember the article, Richard. Yeah. But it was something to do with Bruce Forsyth and play your cards oh, right. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if I'm. I don't know how <laughs> the Bruce Forsyth. Um, Lee, uh, Bruce Forsyth, play your cards right. Leaving the stadium mechanism. <laughs> it's the name of the mechanism, and it was for a set of rules. I don't know whether I'm allowed to say this, but it's in 
Latin, and I'm sure you can beep it out if you want to, called Circus Shitius. <laughs> and it, basically the premise was that, that this circus was on the Via Accrington in Rome, and it was basically like Northern Premier League of circus of um, <laughs> of circus charioteering so it wasn't it wasn't the, the posh stuff this was real lower divisions this was backstreet stuff in which anything went and it was a bit it was a bit sort of mad max meets chariots which is quite fun but we had a mechanism there where the board was gridded and um, if your charioteer was knocked out of his chariot he would land on the floor then he would have to try and make his way to safety using the bruce forsyth play cards right mechanism uh, where you get a deck of cards and you deal it out and then the the player has to decide whether the next card is higher or lower and um, and that way they move across the board to see if they can get away i was talking to a mate of mine who resurrected this game at partisan about four or five years ago he said and they were using it and they he said they were going higher lower <laughs> everybody over 40 was crying with laughter Everybody under 40 had no idea what was going on. He said it really was, it really divided the audience into two. And of course, all these youngsters couldn't understand what these silly old sods were laughing at. But yeah, that was one, that is still one of my favourite game mechanisms, just because it's so ridiculous. And I think that is that perfectly encapsulates the when we talk about the ageing and grain of the hobby, doesn't it? Yeah, we've got that, it does. We've got that sort of post 40 and and under 40 uh, crowd because uh, i remember reading that with great fondness i, I think there was something also uh, was it 1866 and all that or, yeah, or something around that, yeah. that the series that never ended because duncan lost a couple of editions and oh. i couldn't be bothered to rewrite because in those days when you wrote for a magazine we didn't have word processors uh, you, no. you, the best you would have would be a, wo a word processing typewriter um, with a daisy wheel, and it would allow you to see one line of what you were typing before you press the button to type. Uh, and then you'd have to type this and double space it and submit it. And it was a horrific chore. It really was. You know, you made one error and you'd have to scrap it all and do it again. Um, so it was it was really hard work. It was hard work. But yeah, I, I'm uh, 1866 is very much one of my first wargaming loves. Um, and actually, in a way, it's it was the thing that switched me on to the thing that I'm really most interested in, which is the way infantry tactics have developed and developed. And, and the War of 1866 is kind of the very first starting point because um, it's where you move away from the muzzle-loading rifle and you go to, to the breech-loading rifle, and that all of a sudden means that people are firing six rounds a minute rather than two rounds a minute and the infantry tactics have to change so that that's um yeah very much um a first love and i'm actually at the moment looking at going to western germany to walk some of the battlefields i have been to um bohemia and uh, walked uh, you know done Koenigratz and all the major battles I mean, one of the things in those days was prior to the internet, if you were lucky enough to go into an antiquarian bookshop in some back alley somewhere in York or Brighton or whatever, and find a tome on some war that you'd never heard of that you picked it up and thought, wow, this is this is interesting. You'd probably have to pay through the nose for, for it. And then you'd feel obliged to write articles for the War Games magazines on it, because you think nobody else has ever heard of this, and this is something that people would be interested in. And I think that was the very start of my feeling that 
we wargamers were in a community together um and uh that writing for magazines was about contributing to the the greater good of the hobby if you like yes and and, and those early war games magazines were our only access into the hobby weren't they that they gave us uh that you could only find you, could, you needed a war games magazine to find out what the latest figure release was if you know dixon's as i was into in the in the late 80s early 90s i, I hung on to every advert that they they released that was yeah, the only much. way we could get that information wasn't it yeah very much so and and funnily enough in a way it focused the hobby um when you went to the club people were talking about the articles that were in that month's minute war games or war games illustrated and that was the only access you had to the hobby you know you'd wait all month for the magazine to come i used to drive 20 miles to pick mine up and i used to have to get there in my lunch hour and back and you'd get there and the bloke would go oh it's not arrived yet so you tune back back at high speed um but yeah uh, uh, which was interesting actually because the the hobby at that time was was not at all um homogenous so it, it was very much split into different groups you would know your mates at your local club but you wouldn't know anybody else you wouldn't know anybody from the club up the road and you yeah. and your club certainly wouldn't have anything to do with the club up the road in fact you'd look at them at a war game show when you saw them and go there's those weirdos from the club up the road yeah. they're not normal like we are so it um it's it, the the magazine was was if you like the anchor the magazines were the anchor around which the hobby was was um um whatever you do with anchors floating <laughs> floating that's uh, right bobbing along yes. bobbing along yeah um so that, from those early articles um i know that i, I think i'm right in thinking uh, i ain't been shot bum was your first set of rules was it the, the yeah. public set of rules yeah it was um we well in fact i wrote an article for war games illustrated called i love the smell of Kriegspiel in the morning um uh, which was where i talked about using the ideas uh within the 1824 crucible rules and trying to use them to play a game of vietnam so the idea of rather than having rules for every factor you just look at the table and go is that a good shot is that an okay shot or is that a poor shot and it was just the idea of introducing some of those sort of more free Kriegspiel, the ideas from free Kriegspiel <laughs> into the game and, and how that would allow you to, you know, clip along without having to go through pages and pages of stats. And then several people got in touch and thought, oh, that's a good idea. And uh, my colleague Nick and I uh, had come up with the idea between us initially when we'd revisited a set of Vietnam rules that we had loved. And then we played another game of and thought, God, this is awful. Um, and so we decided to chuck some ideas in a hat. And um, that article kind of came out of it. And then we thought, oh, rather than Vietnam, we could do World War II with this. And so we basically wrote I Ain't Been Shot Mum. Um, and we can't really work out when that was. We think it must have been about 1991. Anyway, it had got to the point by 1992 that we set up a Yahoo group. And the only reason for doing that would be because people were contacting me and asking questions. And we said, look, rather than email me, why don't we have a Yahoo group? And then you can all see the answers and see what's happening. And now we've had about 28 million messages in there and I don't go there anymore. Because <laughs> Yahoo groups have 
gone west or whatever they've gone. Uh, but yeah, so um, that was the first set of rules we produced. Uh, it was very much a hobby business at that point in time. Um, it was uh, just something we did because we were kind of consumed with the enthusiasm of of what we jointly created because it was really was a joint venture you know half the ideas came from him and half from me um and uh and kind of an accidental partnership was born which um just grew and grew over the years um and we got to the point where i said to nick we're gonna this is it you know i I was i own my own business i was managing director of a company and um I said, this is getting in the way of my real work. It's really stopping me work. And he said, uh, yeah, yeah, I fully understand, whatever, What? that's a shame. Never mind. You know, real life comes first. Anyway, I had a chat with the wife and she said, no, look, hold on. The kids are going to, kids are at a big school now. Um, I'll go back to work and you go for it. So that at some point it became a full-time business, but I have no idea when it was. It was about 14 years ago or something. Yeah, I'm sure it feels like a lifetime ago sometimes. Uh, I can't uh, really remember. Um, <clears throat> I can't. Well, I've been self-employed since I was about 30 <coughs> with one business or the other. And so I can't really remember where, where the drawing line, the line was between the two, especially as by the time Two Fat Lardies became full-time, it was kind of 50% of my job anyway. So yeah. It, um, yeah, it, it's kind of, and wargaming has always been there. I mean, I would wake up in the morning and think wargaming and I'd go to bed at night and before I went to sleep, I'd think wargaming. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of that obsessive behaviour that um, I think makes wargaming such a, a, a fabulous hobby because there's so much in there yeah. that you can enjoy. You know, one minute you're thinking about researching, the next minute you're choosing your figures from your Dixon's advert yeah. or catalogue or whatever, and the next minute you're uh, modeling a modeling a village in afghanistan or whatever and there's so much to think about and so much to do that it's it's a fabulously um uh, time-wasting hobby <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's a good answer actually yeah it's it's true i mean it, it, you tap into so many different skills the, the artistic side the, mm. the academic side the sort of yeah when i'm going to say competitive but i, I don't mean that win at all costs but you, you know you're playing to win aren't you you want to win oh, the game grind them into the dirt absolutely <laughs> yes. humiliate them <laughs> under the jack heel of the jack boot yes yeah no you're not but uh, but yeah we all want to win of course yeah, there was a point yeah. playing a game and not wanting to win i come from a rugby background i want to win yeah me, <laughs> but, you and me both yeah, but yeah i'd absolutely. rather um i'd rather but equally i want to have fun while i'm doing it so yeah, i don't I want to win to in a manner that upsets the people i'm gaming against <laughs> so, so it depends on the opponent but well, it's, yeah. that's normally handy actually because i normally lose anyway yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my win-loss record isn't great. <laughs> uh, okay, so, um, yeah, so Two Fat Lardies have been around for some time then. Um, mm. it, it, I ain't been, been shot, Mum, uh, mm. evolved. Uh, and you've you've written, well, I, I'm not quite sure how many rule sets now, but... No, oh, I don't know. Each, <laughs> each set seems to have uh, found a, a home and uh, its own following, doesn't it? Whether it's uh, mm. Kiss My Hardy or... Um, uh, what's the uh, what's the World War One set uh, through the oh, mud of the blood? The blood yeah, yeah, um, and and also with the uh, Lardy specials, which yeah. are great reads, um, and now onto the Lardy annual, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
But at some point in the not too distant past, mm. a germ of an idea came along for a ancients game. Mm. So mm. How, how did that? So infamy, infamy. Uh, is it available now? Is it? Uh, it's, av- it's available for pre-order now. In fact, pre-order. we release it this coming Monday. So pre-order runs up to Sunday. Brilliant. Um, <clears throat> um, yeah, it's uh, it's absolutely imminent. So um, we're we're ready to go on that. But yeah, I uh, it's been a great project. I've loved it. I've really really enjoyed it. I've never been. I haven't felt quite like this about any project. It's remarkable, actually, because I, I've found myself getting more and more immersed into the history, which has been absolutely superb, because I a lot of this stuff I did when I was at school in Latin, yes. but it's been nice to read it in English and not have to bother <laughs> with all that nonsense. Yes. Somebody should have told Caesar, really, you know. <laughs> you do it in English, mate. You know, the sales will be much better. <laughs> Yeah, and thousands of school kids will appreciate it even yeah, more. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. where did where did this germ of an idea come from, Richard? Um, well, I've always I've always been interested in the, the world of the Romans uh, ever ever since I started doing Latin when I was seven. Um, but um, I, I enjoyed I loved Latin at school, not because it was. Um, uh, I like the language bit, but because it was a window onto another world, and I found that absolutely fascinating. It was almost like being in a time machine because obviously when you, you when you learn French, you, you you know Johnny goes to the cinema and says, "Look at that large giraffe." Well, I can go to the cinema and admire a large giraffe, but when you're when you're translating Latin, by default, it's about things that well maybe they might have giraffes, but they'll be slicing them up in the arena. That's um, right. So. Um, it's uh, it, it was a window on a different world, so I've always been interested in it. However, one of the first war games I've ever I ever played against an opponent was a lad at school when I was about twelve, and he had a set of ancients rules, and they were so turgid, it really put me off. I can't remember what they were; they were awful. Yeah. And then we were re-exposed to them at the club when um, this it was in the I don't know late eighties, early nineties. A guy at the club brought them along and, and he would literally line up an army uh, 12 inches away from the opposing army and they would just be one continuous line and they would advance to make contact. I mean, why you had to go through the phase of advancing to make contact? He should have just put them in contact in the middle of yes. the table. The and then you start at one end. You got to, if you roll the right roll, you get to choose which end it was. And then he'd work his way down the line, work his way down the line until the game was over. And I thought... Blimey, <laughs> is it awful, <laughs> terrible? But um, <clears throat> as a uh, as a concept, I've always been interested in the way infantry tactics have developed, and it's something I've I've studied um, a lot. Um, I, I was always particularly interested. You know, the War of eighteen sixty six was my first love because it really introduced me to the concept of this was where the Jace Needle gun comes in, and this is where tactics change. Um, <clears throat> And so that's something I've always studied um, <clears throat> in some detail, excuse me. Um, and I was really trying to get back to the, not the genesis of it, but almost um, in terms of studying the way uh, troops fought and very interested in the concept of asymmetrical warfare where, you know, one side fights like this and the other side fights like that. And I found myself thinking about and starting to read about 
the concept of the asymmetrical warfare of civilization versus barbarians. Now you can look at the Greeks or you can uh, you can look at the Romans, but you're, you, you're going back to that period and it's basically looking at how an army would drill and order fights against an army which has no drill and very little order and is more about human passions. And it's, it's the heart against head sort of yes. uh, trade-off, if you like. Anyway, I had this idea rattling around in my head and I've kind of got a shelf in the back of my skull where I place ideas and just leave them there to fester, a bit like a crocodile does when he grabs somebody and shoves them under the ledge in the bank. And yeah. then eventually, when they're ready to eat, he consumes them. And um, I, in my crocodile-like manner, was allowing this idea to fester. And then a chap called John Savage from Harrogate War Games Club came up to me at um, Partizan um, uh, last, last year at some point. And he said, uh, all right, Giza, I've got an idea. Uh, he said, I'm thinking about doing ancient sharp practice. What do you reckon? He said, I, in fact, I've written it. Here it is. Okay. I, <laughs> I said, no, no. I said, you can't publish this. I said, because I've, I've got, I'm doing this. <laughs> uh, I said, however, I'd love to cooperate with you on it and work together on it. So he gave me this draft that he'd done, and I took it away and completely trashed it, completely yeah. ruined it. <laughs> and I said to him, and I, I sent it back to him, and I said to him after a couple of tests, I said, listen, mate, I said, what I've done is, is, is not fair. I said, I've taken your ideas and just trashed them and put my ideas in it. What I'm going to do is give you yours back, and I'm going to go away and write mine. I said, yeah. because that's a much better approach. However, I will happily steal some of your ideas. Um, um, but uh, yeah, so I went away and uh, I started to do more serious research, more in-depth research, and uh, really to try and uh, gain a greater perception and understanding of what it was exactly I wanted to create. Because I think one of the important things that, for me, one of the important things is you do the research before you design the game. You might have an idea. You might have preconceived ideas, but you've got to put them to one side and do the research before you can develop the game. Anyway, these ideas were knocking about. So I went away and I did my reading. And I always try and start off with um, – well, I always try and start off actually with a, with a couple of novels just to see if I fancy the era once I've, once I've read that. But I'd already done that. I'd already done that a year before and yeah. that had made me think right, yeah, I, I really like these ideas and I'd already uh, had some chats with people like Harris Idebottom who uh, obviously as well as being a well-known author uh, on the ancient world of Rome with his uh, fabulous series based around the doings of a chap called Ballista um, I'd approached him he's 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 an academic and uh, I'd asked him to suggest some reading material and I'd approached uh, my good friend Jasper Orthus who's, who's the chief editor at Ancient Warfare magazine and asked him the same. And these guys had come up with a whole pile of academic papers. And then I went back, before I read them, I went back to um, to reading my Tacitus and reading my Caesar in Gaul and uh, uh, the Civil Wars and so on and so forth, and reading reading those just to get the feel for the, for the period. So having done that, I then started looking at things like archaeology, looking at uh, what evidence we have for weapons, um, looking at what evidence we have for um, how 
um, <clears throat> armour was worn, how armour was used, looking at evidence for, um, well, really as much as you can find about the ancient world. And then looking at these academic papers to try and gain an understanding of what people far more intelligent than me had, had concluded. And sometimes disagreeing with their conclusions, to be fair, but that's part of the fun of research is that you yeah. form your own picture. And I think any any set of Wargames rules that I produce is really um, an illustration of my conclusions from my academic research. And if people don't like it, well, that's probably because they come to different conclusions. But that's what academic research does. So I'm not yes. too concerned about that. Um, so I went through that. <coughs> Excuse me. And then I thought, right, OK, well, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to find a chassis for this to run on initially. So I did use sharp practice as the initial basic rule chassis. So, you know, I looked at uh, just taking the basic movement system from that and the basic card activation. And what you then do is you develop a set of rules and you start testing it and you test it. And gradually you remove the bits of the chassis that were there from sharp practice and replace it with the new bits that are infamy, infamy. Mm-hmm. And eventually it's a bit like Trigger's broom. Eventually you've replaced the head. and 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 the the handle handle. so what you've got is not what was there originally yes um but obviously there's more parts to uh, a set of rules than triggers broom um so yes so it that was very much a case of of taking that and developing it from there um and getting that through to a play test set um and then the the real fun part of the rules is 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 the play test phase which um which I really enjoy. I'm blathering. Sorry. Hard work. No, it's not actually hard. No, the playtesting is not hard work. The hard work begins at the end of playtesting when you get it to publication. I mean, that is horrific work. I mean, if I tell you we went through 20 versions of the proofreading and literally went out 20 times going through it. And... um, and then once we had the printer's proof back, we went through that again twice. Um, and it, it's that is hard work, and and actually getting the language right, because so much of this is about getting the terminology you use consistent and correct. And there are going to be errors, and you kind of have to to accept the fact that there are going to be errors. And and but ultimately, you want to try and get it as right as possible. Um, and so that's the hard work. But the playtesting is just great fun. I absolutely love playtesting. It's um, it's just uh, the most creative process that I can I can think of. And it's fabulous when you we go out to a very tight playtest group initially, let's say half a dozen people, and they will then playtest it with potentially, you know, uh, several other people within their circle. So I guess at the, at the extent you're probably going to have 20 people playtesting it in what we call the tight playtest group. Yeah. And then once you've done that, um, and once you've really got it to a point where you believe the principles are right and you've, you've developed the ideas that you want to develop within the rules uh, and created some, something that you think is good and worthwhile, then you go out to a broader playtest because their job is not to help develop the rules. Their job is to test the rules. Um, and, and that, again, is good fun. And, and part of that process is also taking it around to war game shows. I mean, we're publishing this, you know, beginning of July. Uh, I, the first show I took this to was in January. You know, we've, we've had it out there around the shows for uh, for that long. And obviously we were play testing it and testing it for more than six months before that. 
so it's a it's a long process, but it's it's great fun. I mean, it's great. Fun. I absolutely love it, and especially the early early phase stuff where you really you kind of almost just chuck stuff on the table and go, what next? And that you, you just have those workshop sessions. And to be fair, this we didn't have the work those workshop sessions with this because we we were using sharp practice as an engine. So it was just a case of then testing out the new ideas based on that engine and once you've got proof that they work then you develop the rest rest of the body the rest of the chassis with that but yeah no play testing is great fun really really good and and great to uh, get feedback from people all around the world who were involved in that because you you do get different contextual ideas creeping up that you know people see things slightly differently you know we tend to th- see things from an anglocentric perspective other people see them from you know a different and, and I think to, as Brits we have tended to see things from a, an imperial perspective with Rome because I think yeah. a, you know a lot of the history of my generation were taught at school was you know a bit left over from the British Empire which saw itself as the successor to the Roman Empire so Britain and Rome t- tended to identify <laughs> themselves with each other which is you know anachronistic and all that but nevertheless we that was the the focus that we tended to be taught with in 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 those days so it's um yeah it's been it's been a really interesting phase that as i say the horrible bit has been the last month but hopefully um we're now um we're now seeing the fruits fruits of that labor yes when a question i've always often wondered Mm. with people who write Mm. rules is when is Mm. it done when do you know that it's done? Well, that is a problem. Um, when do you know when it's done? You know when it's done because you know it's done. So what you'll do is you'll you'll play test it and you'll you know you'll play a game and you'll go right we need to tweak that and then you'll go back next week and you'll go oh we've overdone that slightly and then something else will come out and then you'll tweak that. And then you keep going and then when you go, haha, look, we didn't have to tweak anything this week. That's when you go out to the second phase playtest group. Yeah. Because uh, that's the point where you want people to break it. Yeah. Uh, and people who haven't, people who've been involved in developing it, know what they think the rules are meant to say. Yeah. Now you need people who haven't got a bleeding clue <laughs> who are going to come <laughs> at it from completely afresh. Completely blind, yes. Yeah, completely. And then, then you can get them involved. And, you know, the, some of the some of the final stages of playtesting are with people who haven't been involved in the process before and, um, uh, 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 you know, are coming at it completely afresh. And you can only hope that you've got it right. It's, it's a huge – it is a huge worry. It is always a huge worry because it's it's what i call ugly baby syndrome you know you produce something you're incredibly proud of it and then there you are with your new baby and somebody comes up and goes that baby's ugly and <laughs> and uh, um uh, and, and that's what that's how you feel when somebody goes up and says do you know on page 17 you've spelt the word cut cat or whatever you know it's yes. it's something so small yes and at that point i think do you know what you know what i meant to say Please go and play the rules and tell me what you think of the game based on the gameplay, right. not on me making a type a, a typo error on page seventeen. Uh, but you you know, I uh, I don't know. But there, uh, it, it is it's a huge worry every time. I mean, you you are always hoping that nobody says you've got an ugly baby, Mr. Clark. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I've been, I've been involved in a little bit of playtesting over the years, and mm. um, certainly when uh, the, using various forums and online online mm. groups and what have you, people can get hung up on, well, you've missed a full stop out, or mm. you have spelt this word wrong, and you know, I, I fully appreciate that stance where, well, ignore that. I want to know. Yeah. Think about the firing mechanism or yeah, the yeah. morale mechanism yeah. or whatever. But how many games would you reckon have been played of Infamy during the playtesting period? <laughs> I guess it's a lot. Well, I've played over a hundred. Gee. Um, <laughs> uh, and with everybody else playing, oh, it's got to be got to be uh, over a thousand, doesn't it? Yeah, sure, it's well, something like that. It's a colossal number. I mean, it's just I just I couldn't even begin to count. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 a colossal undertaking, and you have to realise that at some point you've got to say yes, this is ready because yeah. I could, I mean, literally after twenty proofreading, I am so hung up on on avoiding having any typos in there that I could keep proofreading it indefinitely. Yes. But you do get to the point: the more you look at it, the less you see. Yeah. Because you've looked at it so many times, and at that point in time, you just have to say, "Well, it is as good as I'm ever going to get it." And if people don't like like what I've done, I couldn't do it any better than I have done it. And that's a horrible feeling, having to let go at that point in time, mm. because you are literally, well, I, don't, I wouldn't want to say it in polite society, but worried to death. We're an adult. We're an adult podcast, Rich. Don't worry. <laughs> well, I'll still use "worry to death." <laughs> but, okay, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, it, it, and that's where I think that I'm, I'm thinking about that. How do you know when it's done? And that sort of nervousness to send it out to that final print, and yeah. you're thinking, "Oh God, I hope I haven't missed a full stop off." That must well, you, be a terrible feeling. You do when you when you look at the budget and think, "My God, this is I'm just investing sixty thousand quid in this." Yeah. And if this is wrong <laughs> is, is that a real number sorry is that a real number yeah 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 holy moly this was 60 grand this sheesh um that's a lot that, of money i mean people don't realize you know just uh, eight thousand pounds worth of envelopes oh my god I never, ever anticipated you were going to say a number like that. And we, we don't charge people. We charge people for postage. We don't charge them for envelopes. The 8,000 quid straight off the bottom line now, don't obviously, wow. obviously, you take that into account somewhere else. But, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a colossal sum of money when, you, when you're you know, paying for artwork. Um, you know, we had uh, Chris Collingwood, the military artist, do a series of uh, – illustrations for inside you know fabulous military artists internationally renowned you know it's not five quid <laughs> no. um, so the uh, the the investment is uh, is big which makes it all the more scary and mm. so it also creates a bit of a buzz which uh, is you know if you're an adrenaline junkie you would love it <laughs> um and um and I, yeah, I love it. I love the buzz, and I love the buzz of of uh, getting it ready for um, publication and announcing to people where we are. And I love the fact that you know we've already got a, a Facebook group with twelve hundred people on it, and the rules aren't even written yet. Yeah. You know, yeah. I love the fact that that two thousand people have trusted me enough to place advance orders already, mm-hmm. and and we've still got four days left, and that is tremendously uh, flattering. Um, but even more so, that makes me even more keen that they love it. 
Yeah. And, and everybody who's been in the playtest group are telling me it's absolutely fabulous and we absolutely love it. But it doesn't stop me being scared to death. I can imagine. I mean, just touch just before we carry on talking about the rules then, just about that business side of things, because yeah. I'm, I'm no businessman. If I had to sell for a living, mm. I would live under a bridge in a cardboard box. Yeah. Um, but Two Fat Lardies have, have got this brand. Mm. Um, where it seems to me, as an outsider who's bought your rules and played them, it seems to me that every time you put your name out there with a new rule set, set whether it's Dux Britannia and Chain of Command, which mm. seems to be ubiquitous now across mm. uh, across the internet, across war game shows, um, every it, it seems as though there's a huge uh, swell of love for every single product that goes out. Um, it, it, do you ha- ever have that sleepless night or that nightmare where you think, oh, my God, nobody's bought this set of rules and I've uh, just put 60 grand into it? We did we did once, and that was with Kriegsville, when we produced the 1824 version of Kriegsville, and it was the first rule set that we'd ever produced that we went colour with. Yeah. And I think it was also, I think, I might be wrong, the first rule set that we ever did when I turned it into a full-time business. And the investment at that point in time wasn't so large because we weren't doing, I mean, the, what's cost cost now is things like we've uh, we've got the card decks, um, we've got the token sets, we've got the poker chips, we've got, you know, and there, there's lots of component parts to it that uh, we have to do. Um, whereas... Um, uh, in those days, it, that was just a set of rules. But I think the investment then, and I honestly can't remember, but it was it, it was around 10,000 quid anyway. And the, the, the fact that that bombed completely um, nearly financially ruined me. Um, not sell your house type time, but, um, but it, it did uh, take every penny I had. Uh, and it took me several years to build back up from that. And I think it was only when we published Sharp Practice 1 that I actually got back on my feet again financially as a result of that going wrong. I, uh, I hope you blame the author. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was very disappointed that in that, actually. I really thought that it was going to be something that was of interest to people. And, but what, what is positive is that Throughout this lockdown, we've been involved in playing a lot of Kriegsville games and a lot of people have been you know, interested in discovering Kriegsville because it's something that's absolutely ideal to play over something like Discord or one of these online app thingies. Um, so it's I'm really pleased we did it and I feel it's such an important part and I've never regretted doing it, even when yeah. I lost the money. I yeah. thought this is so important to get this back in print because the guy called Bill Leeson did the translation and he advertised it in about 1983 one no 83 he advertised in military modeling magazine because there were no war games magazines at that point because battle for war gamers had gone and i remember buying it i remember saying to somebody at the club what's this about and he said this is where it all began and um a chap called will mcnally who actually lives up near chester oh, um, yeah. yeah um hi bill if you're listening great bloke huge inspiration for both nick and i and um he said you got to get it so i got it and i never played a game of crucible for years but it became my wargaming bible if i wanted to know how long it took um you know engineers to put up a pontoon bridge or how you know what was the rate of march for cavalry this book had it all in it was you know yeah. it was it was it was a rule writer's bible if you like yeah. it was absolutely great and the fact that it had gone out of print 
uh, I thought was a, an absolute tragedy. And I really wanted to get it back in print. Just again, going back to this community thing. Um, and we still uh, we, we we don't do it in hard copy anymore because it, it <laughs> it's too many raw memories. But we do still do. You know, we've we've expanded the range of maps that we do so people can get the Mets map, they can get the Mackel map, they can get the Koenigratz map, they can get the Waterloo map. And we do try and and spread the word about Kriegsfield. And we're we, you know we're fairly um, uh, active on social media talking about what we're doing and running games well certainly on a regular basis during lockdown. Um, so I'm still very very committed to the Kriegsfield project. It's just a shame that it seems to be treated as some kind of museum piece when in fact um, it's uh, it's. It isn't a game that you can play straight out of the box, but you can take the ideas that are in there, the way it's structured, and you can use that to create your own games. And you can certainly use the information in there to create a Kriegspiel light, if you like. I really ought to write an article on how to do this, actually. Because because we've had so much fun with with Kriegspiel during lockdown that uh, it's... um, Yeah, but anyway, no, that that was... uh, bad news and in fact we we didn't go color again for several more years we just went with black and white and there's there's big issue in printing about going in color and going black and white if you go in color you have to have it in multiples of a thousand um and in order to get a decent um print run uh, a decent cost per unit you really got to be looking at starting at about three thousand copies whereas if you if you print in black and white you can print one copy or 10,000 copy and it costs the same unit cost. It's a different mm-hmm. type of printing. Don't, don't ask me what I'm not interested. I just give it to the printer and say, do it. But what I do know is that when, um, <clears throat> when you're printing a set of uh, rules that maybe you're going to want a quick re- restock of 250, 500, black and white is very, very easy to do. Whereas if you, I've just had to restock um, three sets of rules uh, because we were running out of them. And to restock three sets of rules cost me £24,000. Now, when you produce a set of rules like Infamy, you will expect a spike in sales, which will hopefully cover your costs or at least get you to a break-even point. When you restock three sets of rules and it's 24000 there's no spike of sales to go with that. It comes straight out of your working capital. Yeah. So <laughs> um, colour has, has got its positive. It, colour rules are brilliant, but, but my God, you, when three buses come along at once, you really do know about it. I, I suppose with the, the Kriegspiel, um, development in social media and, and the online communication that, that yeah. we have now, has yeah. probably brought that to the forefront because I've certainly followed uh, your, your games over Discord and, and what have you and the discussions mm. that we've had around it. So maybe, you know, it, it, it's of its time now. This is its time, I guess. It's coming it. of age. Yeah, 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 I hope so. And I really ought to I really ought to um, write more about it. In fact, Nick and Sid and I are talking about writing a book on wargaming. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, we, you know, one of the things we would be keen to do is not just go and then Donald Featherstone wrote this and Tony Garth did this. We'd be keen to explore some different ideas and really maybe make it about where is wargaming going for the future and and how can we develop from where wargaming is now? How can we take that forward? And make it more positive, more interesting, more exciting. I don't know what we're still at. We're still at talking bollocks stage on that one. But um, 
but it's I think that would very definitely be in there because as you say the technology is really arriving to allow it's funny actually when we first started producing the summer special and the Christmas special people go blimey I have to print all this out and it uses all my ink and whatever Mm. we had anticipated the arrival of the iPad (laughs) 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 only and I think somebody at Apple must have seen the two fat lardies summer and Christmas specials and thought what can we make in order to to catch up with lardy technology to tap into that demand yeah <laughs> imagine how many ipads will sell on the back of two fat lardies absolutely. absolutely steve jobs has never mentioned me and i am bitter oh. about it well I'd, I'd be very sore about that yeah, I think, for like time. the pete best of apple world <laughs> only what happened to him <laughs> <laughs> yeah um right so back back to infamy then um yeah. i know that uh you've been very you are one of you are very present across twitter uh, and there's there's a great large community on on twitter isn't there um did and although i follow you i, I perhaps didn't follow the early stages of, of infamy uh, from its inception was were you seeking out ideas across there i know the name came from twitter didn't it um, yeah, no, I wasn't um, uh, because I had all the I had the ideas I wanted in my head, and to be honest with you, you can't design. It's what they say about you know they they, they got a committee to design a racehorse and they came up with a camel. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, uh, I don't think designing a set of rules can be a democratic process no. um, totally. So what we would do is I will have the initial ideas. And then we'll go to our tight playtest group, and then they are more than welcome to chuck ideas in their hat on the basis that I am more than willing to ignore them. Yeah. And then I'm very honest with people about that because um, I, I have to have a vision at the start of a project saying this is where I want to get to. And some ide- and ideas are like paving slabs, if you like, and it, you, you lay them in front of you as you go, and the new ideas help you get another step along the way. Um, but if the paving slab somebody is offering you is going in a different direction, it's no good, is it? You've got to, yeah. you've got to, you've got to stick to your own paving slabs. These metaphors are getting worse and worse. <laughs> <laughs> we'll run with them. We'll yeah. run with them. Don't you worry. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so but I think the next didn't you put a poll out over Twitter for oh infamy infamy well yeah. we um yeah I mean we were original I mean infamy infamy was the playtest title and we a lot of things we do have playtest titles uh, so for example Dutch Britanniarum was beer wolf as in beer wolf yes. um, which was you know hilariously funny half yes. um but um we went with infamy infamy and then we were going to call it uh, discipline and virtue discipline and virtus because the, when you read the Roman histories, virtue and discipline are the two key things that they they have uh, that that they, that they stressed as being important. The virtue of the leaders, the discipline of the legionaries. Great name. Apart from the fact that, apart from the fact that the the, the world has turned a bit. When I was at school. Everybody I knew had done some Latin, and then a lot of people saying, "Well, we haven't got a clue what it means." And you, you, you can't work out what disciplinary virtus means. <laughs> but okay, fair enough. So you think, and also then somebody pointed out it, it either is a virtue and discipline, which is VD, which is not great, or it is, or it's D and V, which is, of course is diarrhea and vomiting. That's even worse. It's even worse. Yeah, exactly. So. 
um, we thought, well, and a lot of people were saying we really liked Infamy, Infamy, because it really sums it up, for, really sums up what lard is, you know, the attitude of lard. Yes. Um, and I thought, well, sod it, why not? Why not? And that then got me thinking about the game and more to the point, the campaign system. So the campaign system that is in there um, can uh, you, you move your career across a wall of fame, which, of course, in you know the walls of Rome, you have many names carved in it. To, to talk about the heroics of the leaders. And as you got this wall, the, the, the words they use to describe you get better and better. Okay. And at the very top, you are triumphant. You, you achieve a triumph in which you are taken in your chariot through the streets of Rome. But at the bottom, you achieve infamy, at which point you are stabbed in the back by uh, in, in a Sabura tavern. Yes. And, um, uh, so the campaign system is, you know, infamy is in there. And we have an infamy deck, which is reflecting... What you read about in the ancient histories, you know, the, the, the deceit, the treachery, the traitors, the spies. And so the infamy deck became a central part, part of the game. And um, and whilst it is, of course, a nod to um, uh, Kenneth Williams mm-hmm. um, and, and the Carry On film, because it is one of the, the greatest film lines ever. It is still now, and when you consider that film was made when I was about four, yeah. it, Infamy, Infamy, they've all got it, Infamy, is still regularly voted as the best British film line in the whole of history. And I think it is. It's a fabulous line. I'm pretty um, sure every one of my friends, if I said Infamy, Infamy, yeah. they would come up with the next part yeah, they would of do. that exactly. line. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It is drilled into our British DNA. <laughs> it is. Uh, along with bacon and eggs and HP sauce. Exactly. So it's, um, we, we can't avoid it. So in the end, we thought, well, we'll go with it. Why not? And actually, I think I think it sums it up completely. It's much better than diarrhea and vomiting. <laughs> oh, goodness. I know you, I know you've you've had one or two great acronyms uh, <laughs> never, over never. the time, but DMV I think was... it's interesting. Actually, we used to get in trouble for that. And when we produced Chain of Command, a lot of people went titter titter, yes. and I said titter ye not. Um, because you know it is about the chain of command and whatever. And but funnily enough, we don't get that comment now. I think right, people right. have got used to the idea that chain of command is not is it, the fact that it spells cock is not important. Because let's be honest, so does Call of Cthulhu, and nobody yes. ever complained about that. Um, no, exactly. So not um, even when not, was, even, not even when they get the big cock out. No. <laughs> well, they, that is true, actually. Big cock. <laughs> Instance, they just assumed it was it was all about uh, 
uh, beer and giggles when in yeah. fact it, that you know yes we do like beer and we do giggle but that wasn't what it was about it was about much more than that but I think now we've reached the point where if you say to somebody oh, I'm a lardy they know what you mean yes they don't think they don't think you eat too many pies they know exactly what you mean and if you say to people that's a kind of lardy idea people yeah. know what that means I don't know what it means precisely but people know what you're talking about yes. so I think we've reached the point a bit like the brand A. Yeah. Do you remember that telephone or the brand Orange? Orange yes. for a phone company, Egg for a bank. They're mm. stupid names. But once you've heard it enough, you no longer think about an orange or an egg. You no. think about the telephone company. Or, or you a think Hoover. Or, or a, yeah, whatever. So yeah. I think we've now reached the point where, where the name is so historic that people kind of just accept it. And I think, I think our, our profile is higher because people have seen us, you know, we, we, we are media whores. We get out and about mm. to anywhere. You know, uh, uh, you know, Nick will go to the opening of a paper bag. <laughs> if there's a bacon sandwich in it. Sandwiches in it. <laughs> well, I, I seem to remember, I don't know if it was, I don't know which partisan it was. Uh, it was one of the partisans last year. And it seemed every other table was a, mm. a lardy game. Mm. Um, and there was, there was quite a bit of made out of of that i think over over social media in a, in a good way to say that well you know this is this is great that you've got such a, a wide reach across so many different periods whether it's a, a variant of cock a chain of command yeah, or yeah. whether it's been played in its original form i mean that must have been great for you i think we're just like the beatles you know we've been around for so long there's so many different albums you can choose from now yes, yes. so um uh, I do think you know if you're going to play if you said to somebody oh napoleonic skirmish the impression i get is that the majority of people go oh, sharp practice before yeah. they mentioned you know any other rule set so i think we've got a high profile in napoleonics mm. i think if you said world war ii people would say bolt action or, or chain of command and I, and I don't think i don't think there would be I don't think one would get more votes than the other so to speak when in fact the fact that the chain of command has come um first first and second yeah illustrated awards over the last three years tells me something positive is being said about it so um you know if we've got napoleonics well black powder era and world war ii and if we've got ancients if this is successful and people enjoy this for ancients well we're kind of um we're kind of up there in the big three aren't we yes um, in terms of periods yeah. but i mean I, I i don't i'm not i'm not motivated by um oh look i'm out selling so and so or whatever I, I don't see rules as competing i don't see my rules as competing with other rule sets i mean i you know somebody somebody asked me a week or so ago what do you think the greatest contributor to your success is i said warlord games and they were quite <laughs> taken aback by that i said well no it's um you know warlord games create a bridge between people who used to play games workshop stuff uh, and who can now thanks to them move into historical wargaming yeah. And the great thing for me is the more people are in historical wargaming means the more people will, will look at, at the rules that we produce and end up playing the rules that we produce and enjoying the rules that we produce. So it's I see the whole thing as a big community, and I keep coming back to this because it is really important to me. And uh, I think that um, what motivates me is to see people enjoying playing the game and actually also to see people playing a game and then being motivated to maybe go and buy a book. 
uh, and start reading and that then opening doors for them or even just small windows Mm -hmm. onto what opportunities can exist in the world of historical wargaming. You know, that we get a lot of people talk about the aging of the hobby and I completely don't subscribe to that mm-hmm. because I, I threw away recently copies of Battlefoot Wargamer. No, I didn't actually. I gave them to a chap in Belgium who's collecting old ones. And as I read through it in from 1977, it was saying, the hobby's aging, we're all going to die out soon, there'll be none of us left. Well... The majority of people at Wargame shows are now younger than me, and I know I'm youthful, 50-something, yes. but, <laughs> um, but they are younger than me. And when I go to Lardy Games Days, there are a lot of guys there in their 20s and 30s. They are the next generation that are coming through. And what really, uh, and the majority of them come from a games workshop background where you effectively go in, buy a game in a box, but that also gives you all the background and history and so on and so forth. So you really are, whilst you're playing a tabletop war game, a war game, you are playing a, a standalone game in the same way that Monopoly is a standalone game or um, you know Cluedo is a standalone game. You don't get Cluedo and then and then go and investigate murder cases. No. You don't get Monopoly and then go and investigate how to invest in property. Or if you do, you're a bloody idiot. Um, <laughs> but um, but hopefully you do get Chain of Command or Sharp Practice and go. Ooh, that pint-sized campaign was really interesting. Perhaps I can go and read up on stuff myself. And that I find that much more satisfying than anybody saying. Hey Richard Clark, you're a huge celebrity because it means absolutely nothing to me. I'm just a wargamer like everybody else. I'm just lucky that the cards that life has dealt me have meant that I've ended up where I am. Yeah, I, th- I think what, what I was aiming at with that, that, mm. that sense of satisfaction mm. from seeing uh, Lardy games being so prevalent at that partisan was, yeah, you know, it must there must be a little bit of you inside inside of you thinks. I've done okay. Oh, without doubt. I mean, it's. Yeah. I, I find it um, um, more humili- humiliating. More, more, um, that's not the word I'm looking for. More Humility. Humbling. <laughs> humbling. There you go. Yes. <laughs> more humbling. I, what, humiliating. That's a great one. Yeah, well, that'll do, wouldn't it? That'll do. Um, what really gets me is when I get when I speak to people from uh, Eastern Europe who were playing the rules, because when I grew up, Eastern Europe might as well have been on Mars. Yes. And the fact that our rules go to Australia, America, France, Germany, it's kind of, all right, yeah, that's that's good, that's nice. But the fact that they're being played in Russia and, you know, the Ukraine and Poland and the Baltic states, I just, that to me blows my mind. And, and I, I just think, what a more positive world we are in now than we were when when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, so that's that's. But yeah, I mean, I, I when I was at that partisan, I had I don't I really don't have a chance. There's just not enough hours in the day. I don't have a chance to look at progr- the program in advance to see what's going to be there. Mm. Um, I always tell myself I'm going to look at the traders so I can plan what I'm going to buy, and then I get there and I'm too busy talking to people all day and I never buy anything anyway, so it would have been fruitless. So I don't even bother looking. But when I got there, and it, and it was literally almost, well, it felt like 50% of the games yeah. were lovely games, I just thought, bloody hell, I, I don't really know. I don't really know how to feel about this other than completely flattered yes yes i'm not really an egotist it doesn't really appeal to me i'm not really motivated by not motivated by money i'm not motivated by ego i just 
I, I'm a very so social animal. Yeah. I like I like to share good times with people, have a good laugh, uh, and and have fun. And seeing people playing those games and going and having a chat with them and talking to them about you know what they were doing is just so motivating. It drives me on to to the next one. Yeah, great. I, I, you know, I, I fully anticipated that would be the line the, along the lines of your answer because mm. I, I just thought it was, it was amazing that um, the lardy products have become so pervasive. And I, I've stood years ago, and I think Nick was giving me the hard sell at parties. Mm. Not the hard sell. That's that's mm. harsh. That sounds as though he's he's trying to sell me double glazing. But mm. uh, it was. What, uh, was I think, he, what was he selling you? <laughs> sharp practice. Oh well, that's all right, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nothing illegal. That's Nothing fine. illegal, mate. No. <laughs> um, but it, it was just so. It was, he was just so engaging, you know. So mm. it, it was as much invested in what I thought as he was in the product, and you know what attracted me to the period. And I, you know, I, I won't, I, I won't blow smoke where the sun doesn't shine. But you know, it's uh, it's clearly a product that's uh, touched many people. And I, I, in fact, I seem to remember a while ago when I first bought chain of command um after after i've been through a bit of a hobby slump uh and there's some personal issues going on in my life i i I messaged you just to say you know this this game and and the the uh the media the the videos that you put out there and the the blogs that you were doing around building your your french Mm. buildings and what have you just really captured me and sort of given me uh, a conduit back into the hobby and away from some personal issues mm. that really just spoke to me and 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 dragged me away from a very dark place. So that that, that was a personal thank you to yourself and. Uh, I <laughs> oh, you did actually. Yes, you did. <laughs> thank You're very God kind for that. to respond. <laughs> I just you didn't ignore me. Alphards. <laughs> to end no. it all. Yeah, a... yeah. No, no. You were very, like you were very kind. <laughs> No, no. Uh, in fact, I was due at a OML last year, but didn't, didn't make it for for those reasons. But yeah. um, but no, you you were. So anyway, I'm sure you're suitably embarrassed now, Rich. So <laughs> let's move back to infamy, infamy. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things you mentioned uh, early on was talking about the asymmetrical warfare mm. aspect. Mm. So a typical I'll put that in inverted commas. Yeah. A typical set of ancient rules will cover 3000 BC to, I don't know, uh, 1485 AD or whatever. Yeah. And you can play ancient Assyrians against Tudor, uh, a Tudor army or whatever. Tudor yeah. yeah. Um, but th- this is pretty specific, isn't it? You've sort of, you've tied, tied down a, a, an ethos and, and an era that you're looking to recreate, aren't you? Yeah, uh, it's very specific. Uh, although Infamy is a game of three parts, so we're actually this is only part one. Uh, but I was uh, very keen to explore different aspects of ancient warfare uh, and to do it in a focused manner. Uh, I'm very keen in this one to focus on Rome versus the barbarians, because uh, and by 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 barbarians, easy for the Greeks to say. Um, I mean uh, the Germans, the Gauls, the Belgi, the Britons. Um, Because I think that the issue there is quite different to issues in in other spheres. So, for example, the Punic Wars, you are going to have an element of that coming in with the Celtiberians. 
but equally you're, you're, you've got a lot more of what we would call the civilised uh, army against the civilised army. And I don't think you can, I didn't want to anyway, maybe you can, maybe people who are cleverer than me can do it, but I didn't want to roll out this huge book of generic ancients rules because it just doesn't appeal to me. I want to examine, and this goes back to my big focus on, you know, understanding the specifics of how infantry tactics work, how troops fought. In order to do that research and to do it properly and to really reflect what you're trying to do, I decided the best way to do it would be to split it in these three parts. So the first book is going to be um, Rome versus the Bar Barbarians. <clears throat> the second book is going to be uh, uh, effectively the, around the, the Mediterranean Rim. So we're looking at Carthage, we're looking at Greece, uh, we're looking at the Numidians. Um, <coughs> how far? We're also looking at some of the Servile Wall stuff with slaves. We're looking at some of the um, Lusitanian revolt type stuff in Iberia. Um, uh, but that is different again. Where there's a, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag on what the emphasis is there. But I've got some real life, and I haven't done the research yet. So the, again, this is a festering corpse in the back of my mind, waiting for Richard the crocodile to come and devour it when he's done the research. So I am, um, but I have got some ideas about how that what they how that will go and there's a theme to that and then the third part is going to be looking at the wars in the east so um you know things like the jewish result revolt with josephus and um writing about that but also um we'd be looking at the dacians and their chums whizzing around on um, um uh, you know into the scale armor and this that and the other uh, but i just see that as being three very distinct areas of warfare and I would rather examine them all quite specifically. So, for example, um, with a lot of war games rules, you tend to find that the Western barbarians are just barbarians and that's it. And you know, they are that. Whereas this, the Germans are very, very different to the Gauls, who are very, very different to the Britons, even though there's quite a degree of shared culture between those two. But mm. the, the idea was to try and really represent them in the way that they are written about in the ancient histories with more information added on through other sources such as archaeology and um, uh, you know looking at um, looking at uh, uh, the images that we get in things like um, you know Ro Roman iconography and so on and so forth uh, you know, Trajan's column and so yes. all of which can be used uh, to draw some conclusions from um, but I, I, I don't think you could use them on their own. You have to use them in conjunction with having read the classics to try and the classics provide the feel and yeah, then yeah. the detail sometimes is provided by that, that additional research on top. So, yeah, I, 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 I really wanted to, to do it and do it properly. Um, just as, just as, uh, 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 almost a homage to the ancient writers who give us the information. Now, a lot of people will say, oh, but they're so biased, and oh, but, you know, Caesar's got his own agenda. Of course they've got their own agenda. Everybody who's ever written a book for political purposes has got their own agenda. But it's my job as um, a pseudo-historian to read through it and take what I believe to be the truth out of it and, you know, by comparing that with other sources. So I've, I've done the best job I can of that. But it is still very much a game that if you had, had read Caesar's Gallic Wars, uh, you would go, 
I recognise this. I, if you've read Tacitus's Germania, if you've read Agricola, you would go, I recognise this. I know that this is this is what he writes about. These are the these are the wailing German women who are there to rally their men. They're in there. Yeah. Um, and for me, that that has been a kind of I've enjoyed the research so much that I really wanted to do those give give, give some kind of tribute to the to those authors in terms of developing rules that reflected their their words that have come to us across two millennia. Mm. It's incredible, isn't it, that those you've mentioned Tastus and you know, Caesar's works mm. that still there's still relevance and interest there oh, and things wow. to be learned. I mean, just I have enjoyed it so much. I've really enjoyed it. It's just been a joy. Um, and also, I mean, again, with coming back to this issue of technology, you know, I've got a long drive tomorrow. I'm heading up to um, uh, Lancashire to pick up uh, um, half a ton of MDF um, tokens and um, uh, poker chips um because that's the limit i can get in my car yeah but i've got livy on audible so i'm going to be starting to do research on the punic wars now and i can listen to that so i'm going to have eight hours in the car well that's that's a great use of time so if i'm walking the dog i can put my headset on and and do five miles with the dog and i'll you know listen to an hour and a half of of whoever whichever classical writer and sometimes those books especially <coughs> excuse me especially when you've got an older translation and the language can be a bit biblical almost and mm-hmm. i find that sometimes that can be a bit difficult to read it's a bit like when you're at school and you do the play julius caesar or you know any one of william shakespeare's plays when you're reading it in lesson you go what's this rubbish what's he on about but when you see it on the stage that language that was so problematic makes sense yes so sometimes listening to it as well as owning the book as the, you know so you can cross-reference it and go back to it but sometimes listening to it is a, is a much more pleasant way to read some of those older classical translations so uh, yeah it's um it's just a case of um using the technology uh, to consume that information in a more effective manner but yeah it, it's amazing how interesting and relevant it is i mean tacitus is a is a fabulous writer his, his, his writing his writing style i think is is lovely caesar is much more direct and to the point but uh, very informative you know you almost feel like every sentence you should be able to gain a tiny grain of information from it but tacitus is a joy to read it's lovely well, I've got a couple of um, audible credits unspent at the moment, so I think yeah. I'll uh, I'll make use of those with Tacitus yeah. and Libby, maybe. But so, um, if people um, pick up Infamy, Infamy, which hopefully mm. they will do in vast numbers, mm. and they've played Sharp Practice or Chain of Command, will will they recognise some of the mechanisms in there? Um, well, they'll certainly recognise some of the mechanisms. So, for example, um, movement is, you know, you roll the dice to see how far you move. But, however, there are some nuances in there. So, for example, um, <clears throat> with the Romans, you've got drill. So are you advancing in close order? Are you advancing in open order? You'll move at different speeds. If you're in close order, you, you it, it's much more of a defensive formation and you are likely to be able to um, protect yourselves better than if you're in open order. If you are attacking an enemy... Um, where you've got the advantage, you want to really go in all things swinging in open order. But 
if you've got a, an enemy bearing down on you in large numbers, you probably want to be in close order and you'll move slightly differently. Um, with the barbarians, <clears throat> we have introduced a mechanism called fervor, which is basically building. It allows the uh, the leaders to build up the you know, anger, energy, excitement, whatever the word is. Fervor is probably a good word for it mm-hmm. in their men. And then that will allow them to enhance their movement. The more aggressive and worked up they are, the faster they'll move. Mm-hmm. So you <clears throat> you'll get you, you potentially will get that tidal wave of, wave of humanity crashing out the the dark Germanic forest, which is something that I don't really ever remember seeing in a rule set um, before. But I uh, I may be wrong because as I say, I had such bad experiences with experiences with the ancient rules sets so I was exposed to. That's coloured my judgment, but. Um, <clears throat> the barbarian leader moves in mobs rather than formations, and those mobs are a lot more amorphous, um, which is, again, I, I hope something interesting and different, different to sharp practice, but people will still recognise the fact that they roll 2d6 to see how far they move. Um, you've got a, a scouting phase in there, which in many ways is reminiscent of the patrol phase in Chain of Command, but it's totally different. The mechanism is totally different, but... Um, it allows you to identify points on the table that your force has scouted out and you can use those points to ambush from. Um, and that differs depending on whether you are barbarians advancing into Roman territory or whether you're Romans advancing into barbarian territory. If you're Rome, if you're the latter, if you're Romans going into Germany, you know, German territory, you know, every wood is a potential threat. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Caesar writes about you know, one of his advances in during the Gallic Wars that they specifically went out of their way to, to make use of open terrain because clearly the woods would the woods really concerned them. You know, there could be thousands of them hiding in there. Um, so um, uh, it's um, th- there are things in there that people will go. Yeah, I feel comfortable with that. and familiar with that, even though they're they're very different. Yeah. Um, We've got a concept. So if you're in in uh, open order, you'll roll close combat dice. You'll roll combat dice. But if you're in in uh, close order, a proportion of those dice have to be used as defensive dice, and they cancel out your opponent's hits. So there's some quite new ideas in there for us, anyway, that we haven't seen before. Um, but uh, you know, the, the, I, I don't think anybody who has played sharp practice would play it and think, oh, this is, I, I don't know what on earth is going on here. So, for example, yeah. instead of the flag cards in sharp practice, we use Cigna cards, Cigna being a Roman standard, and um, uh, but they play in a totally different way to the cards in sharp practice, in a totally different way, but you've got them and you can use them to enhance your troops. So you can do things like step out, which enhances your movement a bit, or you can launch an aggressive attack with it. But you can also do other things. So, for example, the the Romans, the great advantage the Romans have got is that they can use signa cards at any point in the turn to do their drill. So if you you say, I'm going to shoot my archers at Richard's legionaries, I can say, ha-ha, I'm putting my shield up. I'm protecting myself from your archery fire. Or I can break, if you say I'm about to charge out of the woods, I can, as you as you bear down on me, I can chuck pillar at you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once I've chucked pillar, I can play another card and brace for the attack, a brace for, for defense to, to, you know, try and mitigate against the impact of the attack. So the Romans have got this, they're much more nimble tactically. They don't move further, faster, whatever. In many ways, they move slower. But their ability to work through their system of drill 
is much, much more um, apparent, that, which the barbarians just can't do. You know, the barbarians will be using their, their signet cards when their leaders are activated, whereas the Romans can just do it at any point in the turn. Now, it does give them advantages, but the barbarians have got their own advantages. Fervor can add a tremendous a number of dice to any, uh, any close combat, although it does ebb away relatively quickly. But uh, there is a real asymmetry to it, which uh, which I'm excited about. But no, I think if anybody's ever played a Lardy game before, uh, they won't think that this has um, arrived from Mars. <laughs> yes. um, and I, I think that, that really comes down to that point where you've zoned in on this, this period of history, which allows you to put that extra chrome and that extra... Mm. feeling uh, uh, and, and concentrating on tactics and yeah as opposed to having that broad brush of approach you've, you've yeah. really got that concept nailed down haven't you by the sounds of it well i think so and that's that's why we went that way i mean my original thought were oh we'll put in um, we'll put in revolting gladiators we'll put in revolting slaves we'll put in um, we'll put in uh, uh, caesar's civil wars um, with Pompey the Great, uh, and then I thought, no, actually, these are all much more appropriate for the second part. Yeah. So we, we'll leave them out, and we'll, we'll focus heavily on the barbarian folk. But there'll be some crossover, you know, you, as we go into, you know, Dacians are going to have a lot of characteristics that look very, very similar to the um, uh, Germans. Uh, the uh, um, uh, Celtiberians are going to have a lot of characteristics that, uh, well... Yeah, that look uh, that look quite similar to the Gauls, um, but the Iberians mainly are going to look more, much more cultured, civilized, as um, as befits my uh, Spanish and Portuguese friends. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, let's let's talk about then if if somebody orders, and hopefully they will, having listened to this, they, they put that order in for mm-hmm. infamy. Um, and they get the rules and the tokens and the cards. How, how many figures would they need, do you think, for a, a decent-sized game? Um, well, it's it's relatively small. Um, so, for example, the game I've been playing today uh, was four groups, well, two, uh, two groups of eight legionaries, so 16, two groups of eight legionary recruits, makes 32. Um, <clears throat> one group of uh, six Roman slingers, so 38, and a group of six Gallic noble allied horse, 44, three leaders, 47. Um, barbarians, uh, 50 figures in warriors, six figures in slingers, a couple of chariots to drive them around in. So 40, sorry, uh, 50, 60 figures. Get so, out, gets you out of jail. And that's a nice size game. You can just yeah. take the basic army list and play a game. You, and if, the whole thing about it is is that you're probably going to find yourself going, oh, I'd love a unit of them. So if, I'm, if I've got my Caesarian Romans, I might think I could really do with some Gallic warriors to chuck into those woods because they can move faster in the woods and clear them out so I don't have to worry about people coming from there. Yeah. So the rules really encourage you to think as though you are commanding um, a uh, a combined armed force made up. Of, the, the premise of the campaign is that you are a centurion, if you're Roman, on the border in your little fort. 
And <clears throat> you have a mission, basically your in-tray as the, the frontier policeman yeah, comes yeah. to you. You roll a dice to see how often that happens. And, and the, the game is a six-month tour of duty, um, which you know represents the time from when the, the, the crops are sown through to when harvest comes, which is the war season, because you can leave your crops to get on with it and mm-hmm. go and hit people over the head and nick, nick their kettle or whatever you're after. And uh, <clears throat> so um, the the idea is that in your little fort, you're probably going to have a few Gallic mercenaries kicking about or a few slingers or a few local tribal cavalry who you can use. And using you are a fish out of water. You're a Roman who's all this way up in Vindolanda or on the <coughs> on the Rhine frontier, you're a fish out of water. So you're going to rely on those local tribesmen to be your eyes and ears and to to help you um, win the um, uh, to, to help you complete the mission and win the battle. Because if you go in on there in your own as a legionary in this dark, hideous German forests and swamps, somebody's going to jump out and crack you over the head. And then it's, you know, Varus, where are my legions all over again? Yeah, um, so Harry Barbarian. Yeah, type. exactly, exactly. So mm. you, um, you're likely to be looking and going, oh, I really fancy some of them, and oh, I really fancy fewer them, um, and you're you're probably going to build up your force to be a bit bigger. I mean, the the rules allow you know a, a, a role uh, for each game, and that will give you 25, 35, 45 points of support to choose from. So typically. A group of Roman legionaries would be about 22 points. So you know, it's, you're never going you're never going to be selecting a vast amount of support, but you are going to have a bit of flexibility to uh, build a burger, make your force, you know, pimp my pimp my force, and make <laughs> yes. your force, you know, really soup the mission. Yes. So that that's similar to the the chain of command thing then, where um, yeah, you've got yeah. those yeah. very yeah. support options. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. And and same with sharp practice, exactly the same, really. But uh, um, some of the support choices are a bit different, but obviously. <laughs> but uh, and and you get your troop rosters as you do in um, sharp practice, which gives you a big selection of troops you can choose to join your force. Yeah. It's um, I think it just it, it it opens your eyes to what you know the way I think that that warfare must have been fought you know caesar and his legions are very very um uh are very vanilla they need other people to come along and do jobs other than march up the road and punch people in the face and sprinkle salt on their fields they need people to be out there um you know caesar talks about using gallic horse to escort his wagon trains he talks about using gallic horse for the whole recce thing um and you know these these guys are all part of the options that you can have to help you. Excellent. I mean, it's, it sounds excellent, and uh, I, I can't wait to get hold of it. It's good. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed it, actually, and I've religiously this time used the whole system because there's a system for dicing up terrain and a system for, you know, dicing for your support, how many support points and choosing them. And, I, and throughout the entire playtest process, I have religiously used the systems uh, to make sure they work. And the yeah. games we've had have been really good fun, really good uh, and, and informative as well, which is, I think, interesting. 
Well, if, if you can have that added on as well, then yeah. you've got the whole package, haven't you? Where there's, yeah. you know, you're learning a little bit as you go. I've I've seen across uh, Twitter people um, building uh, forces for mm. me. It seems just about everybody that I follow on Twitter has uh, <laughs> has basing up figures uh, ready ready for go. Um, there's one person though who stands out from the crowd, and it's, it's mm. relevant to this podcast being mm. principally a six millimeter podcast. There's a, a mutual yeah. friend I know, Pear Broden. Oh, who's, hey, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He is, and uh, he's 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 been the contrary one, going uh, with six mil. I don't know if you've seen any of that at all. I have, I have, I have. Which which I think um, goes to show that. War games rules are really scale agnostic, aren't they? And that what one of the funny things I find, particularly running a six mil podcast as I do, is mm. I get frequently asked, um, "Will these rules work with six mil, or, mm. or what? What rules do I need to play this mm. battle in six yeah. mil?" And I, you probably know where I'm going with this now. Yeah. And my, my feeling is, you can <laughs> use whatever rules you want. <laughs> it's all, it's yeah. all in the mindset, isn't it? And, it is. It is. Totally. Um, yeah. I, I know that I, I've heard you talk before that if if you were starting chain of command from scratch now, you might not have used 28 mil. But 28 mil is a very visually impactive yeah. scale. It's very beautiful, and yeah. you know there's some lovely figures out there. But you might have used a smaller scale whether 20 mil or 15 mil yeah yeah um, well 15 uh, mil is actually the true ground scale for chain of command so if you you know if you play it in 15 that's what it really looks like yes uh, yeah but and I know people do don't they yeah we are so used to distorted uh, ground scales in our games that uh, what's right looks odd <laughs> yes yes but uh, you know that, that that comes with um, needing nice pictures I guess isn't it and the war games magazines are full of uh, beautifully painted figures uh, from whether it's the Perrys, whether it's Warlord or uh, Crusader or Artisan or whoever. Yeah. Um, but uh, have you got any sort of tips or ideas or thoughts about people who might want to play Infamy, Infamy and Six Mil? Yeah, I, I personally, I, I would say don't do it one figure to one figure, but get a small base of uh, maybe half a dozen figures on it and have your unit as eight um, bases rather than eight figures. Right. And potentially, um, <clears throat> I think that could give you a sort of much larger looking game with something like a, you know, a cohort or something, mm. um, but nevertheless, which would still allow you to see that tactical detail. I mean, I would say I would use centimetres rather than inches. Um, right. But if you did that, it would allow you to do it on a much smaller playing area as well. Mm. I mean, you could, you could do it on something like three foot by two foot. Um, and that that could look absolutely fabulous. I mean, one of the things that I uh, I looked at doing was doing using sharp practice, going back to this War of 1866 thing that we looked at, was using sharp practice on exactly the same basis with, you know, a much smaller level, six mil, ten mil, whatever, yeah. uh, figures. And refighting some of those battles in the West because they were largely fought with two, three, four battalions. And you could really have a spectacular looking game using the sharp practice basic um, engine, but um, uh, using groups of figures rather than single figures. So uh, it, it's the limitation is only the limitation you personally put on it. Exactly. Exactly. 
I'll, I'll look forward to that 1866 uh, game, uh, Rich, when you uh, when you produce it in your spare time. Well, yeah, um, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's probably something that will get into one of the, you know, Lard magazine. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, but, as I say, I'm keen to get over to Germany and have a look at some of those battlefield type, uh, sites, Bad Langenzelzer and uh, Alwinsleben and Würzburg and uh, Tauber Bischofsheim and uh, do the tour, um, you know, get, get my books and my maps out and go and do that. And that, I think, will really fuel me to, to do that. And painting six mil is something that's, uh, I'm, you know, a lot more effective than... I, I couldn't see that game working in 28 mil. Just would, it just wouldn't work. Wouldn't work. Whereas six mil, you could really do some great modelling, make it look the part. Hmm. You, you, that's a, a nice segue actually, yeah. because I know you, you've talked about this before about using the right tools. Um, what, what it is you're trying to represent. Yeah. Um, and that, you're right. I have. <laughs> If, if, if you don't mind me just uh, segueing to, uh, and I've, I did a little bit of research on this, and it was 10 years ago mm-hmm. that you first put up a post about the Boer War. Yeah. Um, and if I remember rightly, you you bought some figures in a larger scale uh, to try and test out some ideas for the Boer War, but then settled on 6 mil. Yeah, uh, we uh, I'd had them in 15 mil, and I just thought, don't, don't do it for me. So I went to Pete at Bacchus and I said what have we got here and at that time and I don't know if he does Boer War now but at that time he didn't but I was able to use I was able to find figures in different ranges that, yeah. that absolutely you know worked mm-hmm. um, I think they might have been for sort of Omdurman and some of them were for the Zulu Wars but really um, the great thing is in 6 mil you can do a, a conversion with a paintbrush so to speak yes. um, <clears throat> and um he had some, I think the Boers were for the Zulu Wars um, as well. But, um, uh, and and he helped me select, I think I showed him some pictures of the artillery pieces or I can't remember what we did, but he helped me choose the right ones that would work. And with, with a pair of pliers, I just sort of bent them slightly and they looked fine and nobody ever said they're the wrong guns. <laughs> and if yes, they had, yes. I wouldn't have cared. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, I found that six mil for that, the actions that we we fought our way through were the actions uh, from the very start of the war at uh, uh, Talana Hill, uh, right the way through up on to the Tugela River uh, and uh, all about the relief of the siege of Ladysmith. Mm-hmm. And we basically fought our way chronologically through all of those actions and um the thing about it is is that the the terrain there is absolutely vast it really is vast um you you literally have a job trying to identify distances uh, with a european eye because it's it's so um the air quality is different and it's very um uh, it confuses you it's probably the best way to say it You, you you think you're looking at half a mile and in fact it's three miles right. uh so it's um it's no wonder the boers really outshot the british um because you know they, they were much more used to the climatic conditions and using firearms in that situation but the uh the six mil allowed us to create these big vast landscapes um which we could then uh model pretty much completely accurately Mm-hmm. using the huge technology of cut-up doormats 
old carpet and and a yellow and a sort of sheet that we dyed to be the relevant colour. And the buildings we got out of the Monopoly set. Oh, right, um, okay. And I didn't even paint them. So when you look at the pictures, you know, if it's a small house, it's green. And if it's a big house, it's a red hotel. <laughs> um, but they, they, look, they look good. And I just yeah. used a sort of clump foliage for woods. And, uh, and I, I just used sand to try and grit to try and accentuate where the broken ground was and, yeah. and to show the contours. And it allowed us to really completely replicate the, the terrain. Um, and refight those actions, which um, which I I really enjoyed doing. But after about I don't know I can't remember now. It was either six months or nine months. I suddenly thought nobody's going to buy these rules, Clarkie. What are you doing? This is this is not a good yeah. commercial waste of time. And whilst I am a wargamer, when it's your source of income, you have to be cognizant of the fact that spending six months or nine months doing something with no potential of payment for it at the end of the day is decidedly stupid. Um, in fact, you said to a painter and decorator, would you do six to nine months work for me and I won't pay you? I've got a pretty shrewd idea of what two words he would reply. Yes. Um, but uh, when it's your hobby, not painting and decorating war game, yeah. when it's your hobby, you sometimes go off on the, on the fun bus yeah. Uh, and and wake up uh, six months later thinking what the bloody hell am I doing? So that saw the light of day in one of the one of the the, the, the summer special or Christmas special. Yeah. Um, and there was a two part game to it as well actually because at one part was brigade level action or divisional level action and the other part was core level actions. I can't remember what it was, but and the other second part never got published. But it was it was actually one of the most interesting uh, uh, and enjoyable periods of wargaming that I've ever done um, and the rules are I was really pleased because I felt they really replicated um, what happened in the period and it was interesting because throughout it all we kept the same players playing the Boers and the same players playing the British and uh, Sydney Sydney foams at the mouth and froths on about this saying that how he was amazed that they went through exactly the same learning curve playing the British as the British army went through Right. So by the time they they um, relieved Ladysmith, they'd actually got quite good at it. They'd actually they could actually beat the Boers, whereas when they first turned up, they were you know shot to bits. So it, as as a histor as an exercise in developing a, a, a what was almost a historical Kriegspiel, but one that played as a game, not a map Kriegspiel, but it was more of a it was more of a, a, a tactical exercise a sand table exercise, <clears throat> but using game mechanisms mm. to make it historically plausible simulation, but, but also fun to play. It was a fabulously interesting exercise, but completely fruitless. <laughs> it's ironic, isn't it? I mean, I, I followed the development of that, I remember, very closely, and I, I've got great memories of looking at some of those pictures that you took. I don't know if you photoshopped them in any way, um, but... It was difficult to tell whether or not I was looking at a photograph of the actual yeah. landscape yeah. or I was looking at a war games table. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't. To... I, I didn't have Photoshop in those days and I, I didn't know how to do it. The only thing I used to do was in PowerPoint, sometimes I would block out the background with a blue sky. Yeah. Um, but yeah, some of the sort of low level pictures did look like they were of 
of the area, didn't they? They were incredible. They really were, and quite inspiration actually. Um, as when somebody, that be awful. The stuff we were using. It was literally cut-up doormats with bits of old carpet. Sid had ripped out some carpet in the bedroom, and I said, "Don't throw it away. That will be perfect for uh, that will be perfect for um, KwaZulu Natal or wherever the bloody hell these games were set." And uh, so he said, "Oh, well, it's horrible old manky carpet." I said, "Well, it would be. You're from Yorkshire. You ain't gonna spend any decent stuff, <laughs> you? But that was ideal because it was really thin and cheap and horrible, and yeah. he could use it for building up contours <laughs> over the doormats. I, I, it was a little bit like I felt a little bit like Dorothy uh, in The Wizard of Oz pulling back the curtain when uh, you, you actually published. I think you wrote about yeah. this. I did. It was I, put I put a core mat. Yeah, I put uh, a I put a, a piece on Lard Island News. And that's it, right. it, it it was a bit of a waltz and all. Look how crap this really is. <laughs> I mean, there's no euphemism when I say I felt a bit like Dorothy, but it was, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's that scene behind the curtain and thinking, oh, right, okay. Well, that reminds me of the whole Friends of Kenneth thing, but we won't go there. But, yeah. Oh, right, okay. I was wondering if we're going to speak about Kenneth or not. But... <laughs> no, I think Kenneth has said all that he is going to say. Very good. very, good. And, and well said it was, I, I must say. But, uh, yeah. I, I was approached today by Matt Slade, who's making me some infamy polo shirts, and he sent me a design which said friends of kenneth on it <laughs> he's doing one of which i couldn't resist <laughs> i look forward to seeing them i see i've seen one or two twitter handles uh, changing to uh, in support of kenneth <laughs> it's amazing how these things grow isn't it it's bizarre isn't it i mean i yeah. have to say i mean uh, the whole situation was a uh, ridiculous but i don't even want to talk about it but i mean the we did have a laugh out of what was a particularly stupid situation. Yes, yes. But, and that's... We'll, leave it, we'll leave it there, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we know what we're, what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rich, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. Um, every, every guest that I, I, I bring on to the show, um, I, I don't let them leave without leaving a book recommendation. Um, mm. Now, Infamy, Infamy is clearly uh, the, the latest hotness uh, and the new shiny. Um, so that, uh, I'm not going to allow you to say Infamy, Infamy. <laughs> but we, we want a nice, a nice reference book that people can add to their, their libraries. Um, we're building up a, a bit of a collection now at the, at the end of each of these episodes. OK, well, a lovely idea. I like that. I like books. Um, right. OK, well, if I were to, if somebody were to come to me and say, what book? should I read to get me in the zone, get me in the right frame of mind for playing Infamy? I would say get, well, this is a cheat, get Tacitus and get the joint volume by Penguin, which is uh, Germania and Agricola, because that will tell you all about the joint, uh, it will tell you about uh, uh, Germany and it will tell you about the conquest of, of Northern Britain. And they're both lovely little cameo-type reads. They're the sort of thing, I think Germania is only 30-odd pages long. Uh, Agricola is a bit longer, but not the whole thing's less than 100 pages. But if you just want to get in the mood and something that's well-written and is informative, albeit taking it with, you know, the spin that the Roman politicos would put on it, they're, they're a lovely little read and a great starting point. 
Excellent. That will go into the God's Own Scale mm. uh, library of choice. That will, uh, and I'll look forward to having a, a read of those. Okay. Uh, anything? Any final words other than please mm. buy Infamy, Infamy? Any, any final words <laughs> that you'd like to say on Infamy, Infamy? Uh, not really. I just hope that people enjoy it. To be honest with you, I, I, I mean, I've had great fun doing it, and I know the people who play tested it are raving about about it but um just please don't tell me that there's a one letter spelling error on page 32 because i'd rather you played the rules and told me you hated them than tell me about a spelling <laughs> error um, yes. because we <laughs> we have tried our very best to get it as good as possible so i just really really hope that people enjoy playing them here here we can't say more than that okay rich on that note then uh, thanks very much for your time it's been great to talk to you i've probably kept you a bit longer than uh, i anticipated and i do apologize for that no it's, it's been a great pleasure to chat it's been lovely to have the evening off to be honest with you so. well there you go hopefully you've got your feet up and enjoying uh, enjoying the sunset as it's coming in mm. but, rich i hope, I hope you'll come back on again at some point in the future but uh, thanks very much for coming on no, great pleasure. Lovely speech, you, Sean. Cheers. Cheers. Well, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Rich talking about Infamy Infamy, which I know the pre-orders are going out as we speak. Um, and uh, be on general sale very, very soon. I'm no Ancients Wargamer, but having finished that interview, I went straight out and ordered the rules, as well as uh, Kriegspiel, and I can't wait to get my hands on them. Okay, I'll close out the episode now. Uh, please feel free to contact me for advice, comments, or suggestions. My email is godsownscale at gmail.com, or find me on the Twitters at godsownscale. Most importantly, I'll leave you with this message. Play nice, be nice to one another, and keep talking about sex. Brother Bertie went away to do his bit the other day. With a smile on his lips and his left hand and fixed upon his shoulder, right and gay. As the train moved out, he said, Remember me to all the birds. Then he wagged his paw and went away to war, shouting out these pathetic words. Goodbye, goodbye. Oh, I'm a dear baby, dear from your eye. Though we part to part, I know, I know. I'll be single and empty, don't cry. Don't cry. There's a silver lining in the sky. Don't cry.
in the hand with the gun called it Pete Dog for fun and fancy punch him on the door. Right across the barbed wire fence, the German drops in his dear, oh dear. All the wire gave away and had a yell, hooray, as he ran for the Dutch frontier. Goodbye, goodbye, wife a dear, baby dear from your eyes. Though it's hard to pass, I know, I know, I'll be tickled and it's a go. Don't cry, don't cry, there's a silver lining in the sky.